Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's October 3rd, 2020. The announcement that President Trump has tested positive for the novel coronavirus has raised even more concerns about an already tense presidential election process. A previous episode of this podcast looked at six key dates during the election and where they came from historically. Today, I look at one specific part of the election process, the power of a state legislature to appoint electors in the event of an election failure, and consider how potential health issues with the presidential candidates could implicate that power. Recall that under our Constitution, we do not vote directly for the offices of president and vice president. Rather, we vote for slates of electors, and they, in turn, cast ballots for president and vice president. Those ballots are collected and counted during the months of December and January, leading to the inauguration of the new president on January 20th. Early in our nation's history, the electors were chosen by the legislatures of each state. Over time, that became unpopular with the voting public, and by the 1830s, all but one state, and eventually all states, have moved to a system where the electors of a state are assigned based on the winner of the popular vote of that state. Most are winner-take-all. There are a couple of exceptions, Nebraska and Maine, that divided up a little bit more within the state. That said, however, the Constitution says nothing about popular vote. In each state, that has been an independent decision of the legislature of that state to allocate electors consistent with how the vote turned out. The power remains with state legislatures to change that process and appoint electors in some other way, including potentially simply choosing them themselves without reference to the popular vote. There was some thought that during the Bush v. Gore election situation back in 2000 that the Florida legislature might do that if the court system was not able to come up with a timely and final review of the votes cast there. Two laws frame the power of a legislature to define for itself, without regard to how the popular vote may have come out, a slate of electors and tell them how to vote. The first is Article 2 of the Constitution, and it provides, Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors. And it goes on to say how that number of electors shall be calculated. The second law is 3 United States Code, Section 2 part of the Elections Code, an unusually shortened to the point part of the Election Code. It's entitled, Failure to Make Choice on Prescribed Day, and it's one sentence long. It says, Whenever any state has held an election for the purpose of choosing electors and has failed to make a choice on the day prescribed by law, the electors may be appointed on a subsequent day in such manner as the legislature of such state may direct. Those two laws are broad in their scope. What constraints do they impose on the power of state legislatures? Review of their terms suggests that there are two key constraints. The first is the word failed in the statute. There is history to that statute. It was enacted in 1845, a very different time from where we find ourselves today. And the legislative history of the statute suggests that Congress was concerned primarily when it chose the word failed, not with a problem with counting of votes, but with the distinct issue of being able to cast votes in the first place. The legislative history 
from at least two states noted problems with their process of voting that took a long time, several days to do so. And in Virginia in particular, a representative noted that it was a mountainous state intersected by large streams of water and expressed concern that if there was a lot of rain during a particular election cycle, people simply would not be able to cast votes. And recall from an earlier episode of this podcast that Part of the reason why Congress turned to elections in 1845 and enacted this statute and others, including the one creating a national election day, was the creation of the telegraph made possible for the first time instantaneous communication among states, whereas before it was sort of assumed that news would take days to dribble out from one city in one state to the other, and it wasn't necessary that people had to vote on the same day to prevent elections from influencing each other. So the context of the statute suggests that Congress was thinking about a failure of the election day itself, the actual casting of votes, not about the potential collection later on. The second constraint is noted in the recent United States Supreme Court case about so-called faithless electors, electors who try to go against the direction of their state and party and vote for some other candidate, the Chiafalo case. In beginning its discussion of the general power that states have in this area, first sentence of its analysis says, Article 2, Section 1's appointments power give the states far-reaching authority over presidential electors absent some other constitutional constraint. Drops a footnote. In the footnote, it mentions a couple of examples, one of which is the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection. Certainly, no one would seriously argue today that a legislature could appoint all of the electors for a particular state because they had the reddest hair in that state, or require a loyalty oath to some foreign power as a condition for them being able to cast a vote. You simply cannot make arbitrary distinctions among citizens under the framework set up by the 14th Amendment, and that certainly would apply to this general grant of power in Article 2. Tied into that idea of other constitutional constraints is the idea of settled expectations. Since the 1830s, American citizens have grown accustomed to and relied upon the idea that while technically they may not be choosing the president, as a practical matter, they are, that their vote counts. If they have relied on that for basically everyone's entire life leading up to this election, and the legislature then changes those expectations after the fact and substitutes a different way of electing the president, that raises a serious question of due process. It's a novel question. You don't often see that kind of major change in the ongoing structure of a governmental operation, but it's a question that would require serious consideration by courts. Interestingly, it's a question that focuses more on the counting of votes rather than the casting of votes. It focuses on the legislature substituting its process and its decision about electors for complete counting of the votes that the people had done. It's hard to articulate the precise contours of the constitutional protection of citizens' settled expectations about the election process. We just haven't had a lot of cases where that's come up. But from general principles, we know that it's a serious issue and something that would be a constraint on the legislature simply rewriting what had happened in a particular state's election. This leads to the question of what a legislature can do if something like happened in the 1870s in the Tilden Hayes election that took forever to resolve and required a special congressional commission, something like that happened today. If, due to COVID-19, there were significant problems getting in votes, there was confusion about how particular states came out, what could a legislature do? 
These two safeguards we've looked at suggest that that power is somewhat limited. The legislative history of the statute that allows a legislature to act suggests that that's really focused on a failure to collect the votes in the first place rather than a problem with counting the votes. And the constitutional constraint seems to apply to counting of the votes, that we've relied upon a certain way of presenting the will of the electorate to the Senate and the selection of the president, and substituting that without prior notice raises issues of due process. The harder question, though, is what happens if there's a problem with the ballot itself? The hospitalization of President Trump has raised the question whether he will be able to participate meaningfully in the election process. And any time there's a serious health issue, you always have to consider issues of succession. What if the president passed away? Similarly, on the Democratic ticket, while at the moment Joe Biden appears to be in good health, what if he were to contract COVID-19 on the campaign trail and a similar problem arose on the Democratic side of the ticket? What would happen? While the parties, both Republican and Democratic, have procedures in place to make changes to their nominations and emergency conditions, it's not clear that states have to take them. States have deadlines for putting names on the ballots, and they have good reasons for that. They have millions of ballots they have to double-check and send out and count and keep track of, and making changes after that process has already begun is well-nigh impossible. If one of the participants in a presidential or vice presidential ticket was to become incapacitated or pass away, that name would likely remain on the ballots in some states with the understanding that on January 20th there would have to be some adjustment to that. Either the vice president would automatically succeed to the office of president or there would have to be some appointment made to fill in the office of vice president such as we saw when President Nixon appointed Gerald Ford to succeed Spiro Agnew after Vice President Agnew's resignation. Does legislative action in this context implicate the two safeguards differently than it does if the legislature just decided to rewrite the election process? And the answer appears to be that it does. Recall that the word failure seems to be talking about the failure of the vote collection in the first place rather than the counting of votes later. A pretty good argument says that if the ballot itself has gotten messed up through nobody's fault, if after the deadline to fix it, after it had already gone out the door, something happened to one of the participants where they were really no longer a viable candidate, that's a problem with collection. And that could be, while it wasn't exactly what Congress was thinking about in terms of people trying to cross floodwaters in Virginia, it is the kind of situation about collection that may implicate legislative power. And the constitutional constraint, while still there, there are still settled expectations about how the election is supposed to work if the legislature acted in a way consistent with what appeared to be the will of the voters expressed on the imperfect ballot And also, we all would have to acknowledge that the situation was unprecedented. We've just never had it before, which sort of weakens the force of settled expectations. That constraint might have less power in that situation as well. Thus, what you could perhaps see, if there was a serious question of capacity or the passing away of one of the presidential or vice presidential candidates during this pandemic, would be a ballot that was not correct, but a legislative statement that it would construe that ballot as being for, say, 
the vice presidential candidate instead of the presidential candidate if that particular situation came up. And that would then have the effect of replacing the popular vote, which was no longer accurate after the ballot became no longer accurate, with something that did reflect the willingness of the people. These are all hypothetical situations, though, and it's very hard to tell what might actually happen in any particular case. There's the potential, though, with this operation of law for added clarity, depending on what the coronavirus may give us. But there is also the potential for mischief and unconstitutional action if a legislature decided to get creative and to take its power beyond the limits that are set by the statute and the guarantees of due process and equal protection of the 14th Amendment. Today on Coal Mind, we consider the power of a state legislature to create and send to Washington its own slate of electors, independent of what the popular vote generated in that state. We considered some situations where that could come up, and we looked at some constraints on that legislative power. Depending on the problem, that could be a way for a legislature to add clarity to a process that had become skewed by something the virus had done, but it could also become the source of considerable Bush versus Gore type litigation, depending on how aggressively a legislature sought to go against the constraints of the statute and the general guarantees of due process and equal protection in the Constitution. I would like to thank the National Task Force on Election Crises for an excellent paper. It's available online called A State Legislature Cannot Appoint Its Preferred Slate of Electors to Override the Will of the People After the Election. It summarizes some of these legal principles in legislative history. I would also like to acknowledge an article in Slate Magazine, October 2nd, by Richard Hazen, Electoral Chaos Might Ensue If Biden or Trump Is Forced Out of the Race. And generally, the excellent work of Professor Joshua Geltzer of Georgetown Law School, who is the director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, who writes and speaks frequently on these issues about election law. In upcoming episodes, I'll be considering other important issues of constitutional and federal laws relate to our upcoming election during this pandemic. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and now Amazon. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.